Good morning, ladies. So good to see all of you. I'm so glad that you all have made it. I know the storm kind of had things uh, going crazy. Some people were without power and treat. We just, I mean, no rain, and then we just don't know how to handle a storm, do we? Thank you so much for being here today. I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is always so exciting for me to be here with all of you studying God's Word together. So what do you think about the study of Psalms? Y'all enjoying it? Great. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying these uh, songs of David. Um, We said the Psalms are special. They're loved by many. As prayer poems, they are sung to the Lord. They're emotional, and they stir our hearts. They move us. And we love the Psalms because no matter what situation we're in, uh, no matter what emotion we're feeling, we can find a psalm with a similar situation and similar emotions. And as we read what the psalmist says to God, how he responds or answers God, we find words to pray and lift up to God when we are in those different situations. Psalm 6, first week, we looked at the words um, to express to God when times are hard, when they're crummy or difficult or painful. And it's a good psalm because life is often hard and God is always good. In Psalm 9, we learn um, that David, with his hope-filled Thanksgiving song, reminds us to thank God with prayers of gratitude in all our circumstances. And with Psalm 27, when enemies come up against us, we find words to pray to God that emphasize our faith and our trust in Him, which decreases our fear. And then last week, Psalm 7, we learn to call out to God in humility when we are treated unjustly, trusting our merciful and completely righteous judge, the only judge that really matters. Today we're going to look at Psalm 19. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a favorite psalm of many. Maybe it's your new favorite psalm after you studied it this week. C.S. Lewis said this about Psalm 19. I take this to be the greatest poem in the book of Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. I think he liked it. (laughs) Greatest poem in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 19, David is meditating on God, which leads to worship. And we gain wisdom from David's meditation on God. And this usually happens with psalms of meditation. You're meditating on God. It leads to worship and gaining wisdom. Now, a definition of meditation, this is not Eastern meditation where you clear your mind. It's actually quite the opposite. It is meditation that's thinking deeply about something, pondering, carefully considering You're focusing your thoughts on something, and in this case, it's on God. David sees who God is as he looks at God's wisdom, and he sees who God is in God's written word, the Bible. So he sees God in creation. He sees God's written word in the Bible. Now, we've said that God wants us to know him. He's not hiding himself. God reveals himself. So we will love him and follow him and be in relationship with him. In Psalm 19, David gives us inspired wisdom on who God is as God reveals to us through his creation. 
And he gives us um, wisdom on the second part of the psalm where God reveals himself through his written word, the Bible. God's great story of salvation and love for each of us. Creation is sometimes called God's general or natural revelation. And the Bible, God's written word, is called specific or special revelation. So let's turn to Psalm 19. And as you're turning there, we're going to begin with creation. And I just want to tell a short story. I love that Christ Chapel Bible Church teaches children that God is the creator. Young children, almost from the time they can sit up. Some of you um, might have taught the young ones. You remember this song? God made the big round sun. God made the tall, tall trees. God made the birds that fly. And God made me. That's what they teach those little three-year-olds. And um, I have a story about my granddaughter when she was about three. I was, she went to a little preschool. She had a little friend there. And so I picked her up one day. And when we got in the car, she said, Grammy, and she mentioned this friend. She doesn't know God. And her eyes were real big. And I'm like, that's deep. Uh, so <laughs> what did you say, Harper? Harper looked at me and she goes, I told her, God made you. He made everything. I thought, what a great truth. What a beautiful truth to learn as a young child. And it's even better if we carry that truth with us as we are adults. God is the creator. So follow along as I read the first six verses. But first, let's look at that superscription, those little words next to Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. So we know that David wrote this psalm, and he gives it to the choir director to sing it in worship. Wouldn't you have loved to been back then and listen to that song in worship? Maybe one day in glory we'll get to hear it. Let's look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Makes you want to say hallelujah, doesn't it? Beautiful. But what jumps out to me, there are words like declare and speech and language, voice, words. Creation is God's revelation of himself with soundless words. And in verse 1, it tells us that the created universe shouts out God's glory and majesty and splendor. Specifically, David is talking here about the sky. Now, your translations might say heavens or firmament or expanse, but it's what we see when we look up. It's the sky. Now, we don't know when David wrote this or where he was when he wrote it. It could have been as a young shepherd boy out in the fields at night looking up at the sky filled with stars or during the day as he's watching the sheep, he looks up at the sky or maybe it was when he was hiding from King Saul in the wilderness and he looks out from his cave and he sees the sky. Or it even could have been when he was king and he walks out onto the balcony of his palace and he looks up. But whenever or wherever it is, David is looking up at the sky and he sees God's handiwork. 
God's skill, God's powerful, skillful, creative, majestic work. And that testifies to an even more majestic, loving, and living creator God. Verse 2 points out, let me read that real quickly. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. That points out the continuity, God's ongoing creative work. Day goes on informing night, which informs day, which informs of God's glory and his knowledge and the existence of the creator. The sky gives testimony to God's ongoing skill. It's not just a one-time thing. It was continually day after day, night after night. The morning sky and the night sky teach continually the power and the skill and the goodness and the wisdom of the Lord God. By the way, the Hebrew uh, word here for God in these first six verses is El, E-L. It's a general name for God, and it means strong strong one. And so it's used to imply, to denote his power as the creator. And as we look up at the night sky, so many stars. And when you're out away from the city lights, you see even more stars. And we know that there's even more stars than that that you can see with the telescope. And even beyond that, so many stars. And God made each one of them and put them in their place. They're not floating around out there. We can look every night and see the Big Dipper, the stars that outline the Big Dipper. They're all in their place. The power of God, the vastness of God, when I think about space and the sky, it overwhelms me. And the majesty of God and all that, it humbles me. Verses 3 and 4, they say this. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The soundless words of God's creation give evidence of the existence of God, and it's heard by everyone everywhere. The sun and the sky giving warmth and light that's necessary for life. And the stars and the moon giving light to the night, each star in their position. This great design speaks of a designer, a great and living creator. The world is not just a collection of molecules, but it is, as Tim Keller says, the meaningful work of an artist's hands. Capital A on artist, the meaningful work of an artist's hands. And really all nature is that. Flowers, trees, oceans, mountains, they all point to a skillful, powerful God, creative God, who creates the world with complexity and uniqueness and variety and great beauty. I was reminded of a story when um, I was a senior in high school. I was with my family, and we were in the Bahamas, and we were on my dad's boat, so we were sort of out in a remote place, and we were going snorkeling. And we were by an island. Nobody was on the island, and so pretty much out in the middle of nowhere, and the water was clear blue, and we drove in, and as we're snorkeling, there were hundreds of tropical fish, and they were beautiful different colors and shapes and such variety and so many of them. And I remember just being overwhelmed as I was snorkeling um, and, and talking to God and saying, this is so beautiful. Thank you for your generosity and goodness 
Because being a high school senior, it was all about me. And I thought, thank you, Lord, for putting these fish right here. No one may ever see them but me. So thank you. Thank you for your generosity and your goodness and your creative beauty. And when we think about it, the sky, day and night, the heavens above us, everyone can see it. If you're in the middle of a desert and there's no rivers or uh, trees, you can still see the sky. And if you're on top of an icy mountain and there's no oceans or tropical fish, you can still see the sky. The sky is seen by everyone, no matter where you are. And it tells us here that all people can understand the language of the heavens. Though we may not be able to understand the language of each other, we all can understand the language of the heavens, the soundless words of God's creation. How amazing is our God. What a beautiful truth. The sky above points to a creator, and that is why Paul is able to say in Romans 1, I've got it on your verse sheet, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We're without excuse. The heavens point to the glorious creator. David, thinking about this, gives us some really great word pictures, poetic imagery to make his point that the sky above points to a creator. The sun is the most prominent object in the sky, so it's a good object to showcase the glory of God. But David might also want to differentiate here between the... Um, sun pointing to the glory of God, the creator of the sun, versus the pagan belief of some uh, cultures and nations that worship the sun as God, a sun god. And you know, sometimes it's easy to worship God's creation or nature instead of worshiping God, the one who made, the one who created our universe. So look once again at verses 5 and 6. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber. That's the first image. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, the second image. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David makes the point here that God has made a dwelling place for the sun in the sky. And some of your translations may say tabernacle or tent. And so this um, gives us the image here of a bridegroom coming out of his tent. Now, in David's time, a bridegroom would have been dressed in his very finest robes. Maybe they would have had silver or gold threads in them. They would have been fancy, maybe jewels hanging off of them, the very finest. And everybody's waiting outside, waiting for the bridegroom to come out of the tent. And when he does, they catch their breath because he is cheerful and bright and joyful as he walks down the road to the home of his bride who is going to take to the wedding ceremony. This is a picture of the sunrise bursting forth over the horizon after the darkness of night. It's joyful. It's bright. It's the beginning of a new day. And it's awesome. 
We can't look away. No matter how many times you've seen it, you must look at it. You cannot not look at it. I have a picture of a sunrise. This was, I was in uh, South Florida in January, and I was with my family on their boat, and we were out right before sunrise, and as the sun came up, there were clouds on the horizon. And so you ha we had to wait for the sun to get above those clouds. And when it did, everyone on the boat turned to look at the sun because it never gets old. No matter how many times you've seen the sunrise, it is still majestic and joyful and amazing. The second imagery we see here is David's picture of a runner preparing to run a race. And he uses words like strong man and runs with joy. This runner is vigorous and powerful and he begins his race confident that he will triumphantly finish the race. This is a brilliant picture of the sun vigorously putting forth light and heat and traveling its path across the sky from one end to the other, rising in the east and setting in the west, completing its course. And the light of the sun sweeps the whole space. And then it comes to the triumphant finish in the sunset. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The whole world and everyone in it is conscious of the sun. And God's creation, it has purpose. The sun gives heat and light necessary for growth and life. And we know that every day there will be a sunrise and a sunset. You can count on it. The sun comes up every, up every day because that's the way God made it. He is a God of order and so we don't have to run out every morning and say, hey, did the sun come up and look for it? No, we know the sun is going to come up every morning giving glory to God. David sees the grandeur of God in the sunrise and the strength and the joy and the goodness and the purpose of God in the sun's path across the sky. So what do we learn from David's meditation on God the creator? What wisdom can we find in these words? Well, first, I think, do not disregard God's natural world. This is God's creation. So we should be careful with it. Nor do we worship God's creation. God is not in the tree. He's not part of the tree. God made the tree. And we might use the tree for furniture or for fuel. But we don't want to be wasteful, and we don't want to be destructive. We want to be careful with it. So I think it takes discernment to find that balance between progress and conservation. And I'm going to leave that to you to discern. So secondly, we don't want to disregard the creator. Instead, worship him. Worship him because in the natural world all around us, we see his power and his beauty and his majesty, his skill and his wisdom and his goodness all revealed in nature. So let creation point us to our creator God and worship him. And God's beauty is all around us. Uh, last night, maybe some of you saw the amazing sunset. I have a picture of a sunset. Now, this isn't a great picture because you see streetlights and, and 
cars and all that, but I was in Fort Worth, Texas. I was with my husband. We're driving down the road, and here is this beautiful sunset. And before I could even get my camera phone out to take a picture, the colors are changing, and it's moving, and this doesn't do it justice at all. But I put this up here because I want to say, don't miss God's beauty that's all around us. There's a good sunset in Fort Worth, Texas almost every night. So go out there and look for it. I've never seen so many pretty sunsets, and my husband tells me it's because of all the dust in the air. Maybe so. God's beauty all around us. Notice it and worship God. So with verse 7, David now turns from meditating on the glory and the wonder of God's world to the power and the perfection of God's word. God's written word, the Bible. Nature tells us about the reality of God and his many attributes, but not about his saving grace. God created the sun to give warmth and life necessary for physical life. But God's word tells us of the restoration and eternal life for our souls. God's word tells us about his plan of salvation. That's in the Old Testament. That's what David would have been looking at here, calling God's word. First five books of the Old Testament, and maybe Joshua and Judges as well. And he would have seen God talking about his plan of salvation, which is realized or fulfilled in the New Testament with Jesus Christ, our Savior. God reveals himself through the Bible, and so that is why some call it his special or specific revelation. And one more thing here, the word for God, you see it um, in Lord, it's in these next verses, it's Lord in all capital letters. That is the Hebrew word for God that is Yahweh, the special personal name of God that the Israelites used to point out his covenant relationship with Israel and anyone really who would believe in God. And David is using this name of God to show that he is talking about the living creator God, not just some pagan nature deity. David's God, Yahweh, is the one and only living God. So let's, with all that, let's start verse 7. I'm going to read the first uh, through verse 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These are some beautiful verses. They're so brilliantly written. David gives us six words or synonyms for God's word, the Bible. And then each synonym has a descriptive truth about God's word. And then it's what God's word effectively accomplishes for us. And that first one in verse 7, the word is law. Law, which can mean teaching. God's teaching is perfect. It's flawless. It can also mean complete or whole. It's not fractured. It's not in pieces. It's whole. Everything is there. Uh, Nothing is missing and nothing unnecessary is added. God's word is whole. You don't have to look anywhere else. And what does God's word do for us? Revive the soul. Now, you might think at first 
hearing that, that sounds kind of like a little churchy phrase, but think about it. Revive means bring to life. And the gospel story found in God's word, it is the good news of how we receive eternal life. Jesus, God the Son, came to earth to pay the penalty of our sin because we deserve death. But Jesus died on the cross in our place. And when we believe in Jesus, the once and for all perfect sacrifice, we have eternal life, an eternal forever relationship with God. And Jesus tells us that in John 10.10. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He came to give us eternal abundant life. The perfect teaching of God brings the soul to life. And I think that may be why David lists this first, because it's most important. Look at that next one. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Testimony there, when we give testimony, we're telling the truth about something. God bears witness. He's giving testimony that his word is true. And it gives us answers, reminders on how to live, what to do, what to say. Signposts that are sure. They are trustworthy, or it's a solid foundation. And the result? Wisdom. Wisdom. We know the what to do and what to say, how to live. These signposts that are sure tell us that. We know the right thing because it's God's way. And that is wisdom. Psalm 119.105 tells us, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's witness is true, and it gives us answers in our daily lives. Then the third one we see in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. Precepts, or some of your translations might have said statutes, they are principles. They are standards of action or conduct. They're correct. God's word is a life map which leads to joy. A little while ago, there was a mom that was telling me about her daughter. She was super frustrated, and she was trying to get this project done, and she just couldn't do it, and she was really upset. And the mom said, hey, let me share some um, tips on this, some wisdom that I've learned along the way that might help you. No, I don't want you to tell me anything. I can do it myself. Don't. Some of you moms in here, have you heard that? <laughs> let me do it myself. So the daughter continued on until she was so frustrated. She was in tears and upset. And the mom said, hey, if you just do this, this will work out. So the daughter, in her frustration, tries it. She's able to finish the project. Turns out great. She is really, really happy. She's not mad at her mom then. She is joyful that this project is finished. That is how God is. He wants us to follow him so that we will experience joy. Psalm 119, 111 says, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. His principles, his life maps are correct, and they lead us to joy. Fourth one we see there in eight, the commandments of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The commandment, God's orders are directions. They are right here in God's word. And these directions are radiant. They're glowing. They give us light. They enlighten us, which means gives us understanding. And who doesn't want understanding? I think we all do. From the time we're two years old and we can start talking, we begin to say, why? 
Why? Why is the sky blue? Why is the snow white? Why do the dogs bark? They want understanding. And even as adults, I mean, I find myself pretty often asking God, why? Why? God knows this. And so one of the effective benefits, one of the divine results of meditating and reading God's word, understanding. Try it. If there is something that you want to understand, something that you're really confused over, try reading and meditating on God's word and see if over time you understand whatever it was you found confusing. Try it. Try it. Psalm 119, 130 tells us, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. God's radiant directions give us understanding. And then we have in verse 9, the fear of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. A fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, the fear of the Lord, fear means reverential awe, reverence, holy fear. And God's revelation of himself in his written word promotes a proper reverential trust towards God. God's written word secures in our heart proper uh, respect and response for his name and for his worship. God's revelation, we might call it his reputation, is clean. It means pure or clear, which is the opposite of unclean, dirty, soiled, profane. This isn't a good illustration, but when you have a window that's dirty and you clean it, it is clear. This is who God is, pure and clean, without defect and blemish. And his word, the power of his word, is eternal. It's unchanging. God's word will not pass away. Isaiah tells us that in Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's revelation is pure and eternal, and it leads us to awe-filled worship. And then the last one, number six in this list, the command. Last part of nine, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The rules of the Lord, that's God's decisions. God's rule is true, righteous, accurate. It's right, every part of God's word. Last week, we talked about God, um, the righteous judge, and we said his decisions are absolutely right, absolutely right. And he is the only judge that matters. And so this gives us confidence to obey him. David, knowing all this to be true about God's word, he gives the appropriate response in verse 11. Excuse me, verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. David endorses God's word as more valuable and more desirable than anything else in the world. And he gives us two great word pictures to make his point. The first one, more valuable than gold. Gold was the most valuable material possession in David's time, and I think it might still be today. But what is your most valuable possession? You know, maybe it's your diamond ring or your grandmother's heirloom necklace but whatever it is, God's word is more valuable than that. 
And then David says it's also more desirable. And I, I like David a lot because when he's talking about something that's desirable, he uses uh, something sweet. And I can relate to that. And so the sweetest thing in David's day would have been honey. But what about you? What sweet thing do you desire? Maybe it's a delicious chocolate or a perfect ripe mango or maybe that bowl of just the best ice cream. God's word is even sweeter. It's even more desirable than that. Psalm 119, 103 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. God's word is more desirable and it is more valuable. And then look at verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So David goes on to give us two more benefits of God's word that he has personally experienced. Now, when someone gives us an information or a recommendation, it's always better when they can tell us um, how it made a difference in their life. For instance, someone gave me the name of a guy to clean carpets. My first question was, did he clean your carpets? What did you think? David is testifying here from personal experience. He says God's word warns him, go this way to keep from danger. Don't go that way. You'll end up in danger. God's word warns David specifically about the folly and the destruction of sin. David says heed the warning in God's word because the result is great reward. It is sweet treasure. I think probably all of us have experienced that. As we followed God's word, we experienced that reward or that treasure. Maybe it was peace or rest or success or joy. Or maybe it's a more intimate relationship with the Lord or a more intimate relationship with someone you love. God's word is not a burden. God's word, his commandments, his rules, his principles, his directions, his decisions are not a burden to his people as we try to obey and please God. No, it brings wisdom and blessing and great reward. Moses tells the Israelites this very thing as they are standing on the banks of the Jordan River getting ready to go into the promised land. And he tells them this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look what he says. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, those are the pagans all around, who when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And then Moses goes on to say, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to us as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And then we read in the New Testament, John tells us in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. And as David meditates on God's revelation, the truth of God's word, and the greatness of God humbles David. David says, saying, without God's word, I wouldn't even be aware of my sin. Let's look at 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David calls out to God. He wants to deal with his sin, not deny it. Those hidden sins, those ones that we're not even aware of. Maybe you um, have busy, you're careless, and you say something unkind, and it hurts um, your child's feelings, you don't even realize it. That's what he's talking about here, a hidden sin. It's um, a sin that you do without thinking about it, but it's still wrong. And David says, show me those hidden faults, those unintentional sins. And then he says, make me aware, Lord God, Give me the power to keep from willfully sinning, willful, rebellious sin. Now, we all know what that is. That's when we think, uh, God doesn't want me to do this, but I am going to do it anyway. That's rebellious, blatant, willful sin. David asks God for enabling restraint. God's word is powerful in our lives. He says, do not let sin dominate over me, Lord. Do not let it dominate over me. David wants God to restore him and make him clean. And with that and with these words in verse 14, David closes this beautiful prayer song of meditation with these words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As the word of God affects David's life, he asks God to make his heartfelt words and thoughts pleasing acceptable to God. And that word acceptable here, it has the connotation. It implies a sacrifice. David wants to worship God by offering a sacrifice of pleasing words and thoughts about God. David calls God his rock, a firm, solid, steady foundation. And the Lord Yahweh is his redeemer, the one who could rescue him from sin. God reveals himself in his written word. It is packed with delightful instruction. It's an unending and dependable source of God's wisdom. So let the word of God, ladies, lead you to willingly obey him and humbly adore him. Worship God. Eugene Peterson, in his devotion on the Psalms, wrote this prayer after Psalm 19, and I thought it perfectly summed up. So let me read it to you. I look at your creation, O God, and see inexhaustible evidence of your power to order and to make. I read your word and find a sure revelation of your will to save and to love. Both where I live and how I live are your work. Hallelujah. Let me pray. O Lord, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Thanks, Deb. Ladies, the 